Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin speaking to you from an incredibly noisy hotel lobby in Portland, Oregon. On this week's episode, you will hear Chris Gethard. Why is there always blood on our sheets? And I was like, oh, because I shit blood. And she was like, how long has this been going on? And I was like, since 2012. And, and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I think it maybe it'll clear up on its own. And she's like, go see a fucking doctor. <laughs> but before that, when you think about the best time to go to the post office, you're probably guessing before work, after work, during lunch. You're wrong, motherfucker. That's when, that's when it's most crowded. Everyone's going at that time. The truth is there's no convenient time to go to the post office. That's why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer or printer. Then you just hand it to your mail carrier. It's so easy. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com is open 24-7, no lines, so you get your mailing and shipping done whenever is convenient for you. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, and I know that's confusing. Plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter RISK. Also... You might remember that Chris Castiglione used to be a member of the Risk team. He created our site at risk-show.com. Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans love that course. But remember, the One Month guys have an even more popular course, 
One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step -step tutorials teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a live, real person online to help you out. You learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. You'll be joining over 14,000 students that have already started building their own dream app. What are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support Risk. It's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison and this is horrible music from a very garbagey hotel lobby behind me now. Actually, this is the first time, I guess, because of where I'm stuck doing the announcement, that um, you get to hear our producer J.C. Cassis' style of music, her favorite kind of music behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Panic, and it is an all-star episode, actually. We have four spectacularly wonderful storytellers, three of whom have done the show several times before, one of whom we've wanted to get on for the longest time. This is all live at the New York City version of the Risk Live show. Let's just get right into it. This is Christian Finnegan with a story we call... Rat think a boo boo. $525, including utilities and cable. Even in 2000, that was a sweetheart of a deal. Not something you could pass up. On Central Park West, no less. 108th in Central Park West, but that still counts. <laughs> I called the dude immediately and told him that I needed it. I didn't just want the apartment, I needed it, okay? Nothing was gonna dissuade me. I was being kicked out of my current apartment and I was 22 grand in debt to MasterCard. I had very few options and this apartment was gonna be the answer to all my prayers no matter what. Nothing could dissuade me. Even when I discovered that my new roommate, Charles, was a 38-year-old aspiring hip-hop DJ. Uh, I'll say that again, a 38-year-old aspiring hip-hop DJ. I don't claim to be an expert in hip-hop culture, but uh, I get the impression that once you've crossed 35 and you're not already a famous hip-hop DJ, those rims have probably spun on by. Uh, and I think even Charles knew that on some level because the entire time I lived in the apartment, only once or twice did I ever see him remove the dusty tarp that covered a giant DJ console that took up most of the living room. I was also not dissuaded by the fact that Charles had four, four dogs, four dogs, 
when I moved in, he told me he only had two, and he was just house-sitting the other two. Well, you know, the other two never left. Uh, four dogs, two Rottweilers, a pit bull, and a Labrador. Uh, one of the Rottweilers was named Caesar. And the very first day I moved into the apartment, my roommate warned me that I was never, under any circumstances, to touch Caesar. Because he was, quote, a little fucked in the head. This was our, my very first day. Here's your mailbox key, laundry room in the basement. Don't touch Caesar, he's a little fucked in the head. That was basically it. Um, I believe the direct quote was, I don't need another lawsuit. <laughs> so, two problems with Caesar. First of all, every morning, Charles would sprinkle antipsychotic drugs into Caesar's dog food. Uh, and these drugs made Caesar incontinent. So he was constantly just sort of unloading all over the apartment at any given time, and I would have to sort of navigate around these sort of mountains of Rottweiler-sized turd every time I was coming to and from the apartment. The other problem with Caesar is that this insane, incontinent Rottweiler slept in the bathtub. <laughs> this was his normal bed. There's four dogs, it's a very small apartment, basically the size of this stage, and that was his bed at night. So my morning ritual every day when I would be getting ready to, to go to my uh, temp job at Goldman Sachs is I would uh, get off of my futon and not even the cool sofa futon when just I'm talking about the mattress on the floor with a six inch frame. I would climb off of my futon mattress, undress, wrap myself in a towel, walk through the living room, stepping over the turds, and then I would, at my roommate's instruction, stand above the tub and shout, in the dog's face to wake him up. Remember, can't touch him, little fucked in the head. So, and I was told by Charles, I had to act like I meant it or else Caesar would not respect me. So I would, every morning, I would stand above the tub and I'd just be like, Caesar, Caesar. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever screamed in an insane Rottweiler's face before? Is that any, is that just me? It definitely forces you to ask yourself the question, do I really need to shower today? <laughs> Is it, can I just pretend I'm French? Is it, can I, do I need the bathing? Especially when Caesar would begin to wake up, when he'd be in that sort of middle phase, when he would just be like... <laughs> I'm not Caesar Milan, but I believe that it's clearly translated as, yeah, keep going, see what happens. <laughs> see what happens, yeah, yeah, keep yelling on my face. And every once in a while, I would just see the one eye open like he was like fucking Smaug, like awakening from his thousand year slumber. I'd be like, I'm good. You relax, you chill. You got a long day of licking your fully intact balls ahead of you. I, uh, God forbid we neuter these dogs. No. Honestly, I probably could have dealt with the dogs and the DJ stuff and all that thing if it wasn't for the other tenants of the apartment. By the other tenants, I mean the rats, not mice. I am talking straight from central casting, 14-inch Willard-sized rats that would run around the living room playing hacky sack every night when we turned the lights off. Now you're saying, oh, well, how do you know they were rats? Has anybody ever had a rat in their apartment? No? They make a sound. They make a specific sound, sort of like the gates of hell screeching open. That's like if you took a, a fork and just ran it across a chalkboard, it is horrifying. 
But I was able to delude myself for a long time. I remember I would lie on my futon at night and I would hear a rat chewing the plaster behind my head. And I would tell myself it was stardom trying to break through. (laughs) Very powerful abilities of self-delusion. And the other way I was able to delude myself was because I never actually physically saw one because I would never leave my bedroom at night under any circumstances. That was my rule. I would come home from wherever I was, I would just take a beeline straight to my bedroom, shut the door, and I would not come out until morning. Like even bathroom breaks were extremely planned out. Do you know what I mean? I remember many times sitting in my room, desperately having to piss, but then thinking, well, I'm gonna have to brush my teeth in like 90 minutes, and I don't wanna have to stop eating these goldfish crackers, so why don't I just hold on to this and be able to do it all at once? I almost gave myself a UTI, essentially. And when I would have to go use the bathroom, when I finally would have to go brush my teeth and take a leak before bed, I had a little ritual that I had created to alert the rats to my presence. I, I, I would open the door to my bedroom and I would just be like, ah, ah. I would do that for about 30 seconds. And I'm, I'm sure that people downstairs are like, oh, there's a learning disabled child upstairs, which, is, which was fine because I didn't have to see a rat. One night, I desperately had to pee, and I wasn't even thinking, I forgot to do my little war dance. And I came out of my bedroom, and I flipped on the light switch, and as I started to walk towards the bathroom, a greasy, New York classic special rat crawled out from behind the DJ booth and ran across the living room behind the fridge. And my heart just, how do I describe the feelings of sheer terror that swept over me? Imagine if someone doused you in gasoline and then right as they were lighting you on fire, pushed you out of a 40th floor window. And then as you were falling down, you looked into a window and saw your wife checking out your internet search history. Like, abject terror is what I'm trying to say. And I didn't even know, I was petrified. I couldn't even move, I was frozen, like trying to like remember, how do I breathe? Is it air in? Is that how it goes? And in that time, when I was standing there frozen, another rat crawled out from behind the turntables, ran across the living room behind the fridge. Over the next 45 seconds, seven rats, seven ran that path from the turntables to the fridge, essentially creating a line of death between me and the toilet. And that is how on February 20th, year 2000, 2001 rather, I found myself in my bedroom, staring in the mirror and saying the following words. Okay, Finnegan, you just took a piss in a plastic bag and threw it out the window. Because you're afraid to use your own bathroom. You feel this right now? This is what they call rock bottom. Or so I thought. It was not rock bottom. That's the thing about living in an apartment with rats. You think it's the bottom. You're like, oh, a trap door. It goes further. Uh, At one point in our apartment, the ceiling above the bathtub collapsed. And my roommate would not allow me to go to the super. Never once in the entire time I was living in the apartment did I ever meet the super or the landlord. My roommate would always say, like, oh, you don't want to talk to the super. He's weird. Yeah, I'm sure he's weird. He's weird. I'm sure it's not because this is a completely fucking illegal living situation. Uh, and, he, and so for about three and a half weeks until he actually got up and, and fixed it, we had a three-by-three three hole over the bathtub. 
And one day I came home from my temp job and I was uh, using the potty, no other way to say it. And it was during the daylight, which is supposed to be my time, right? (laughs) I heard the familiar skitter, skitter, skitter of feet across the ceiling and a rat stuck his head out the hole and looked down at me (laughs) and just stared at me. And I remember just thinking like, I'm right fucking here, really? Really? And in that moment, like all the frustration and tension and awkwardness that had been building up over these six months at that point that I had been living there built up and I channeled it into this just shriek, like a primal scream. Like I, I looked up at the rat and I was just like, and the rat did nothing. <laughs> not even a flinch, not even a whisper of a movement. It just stood there and looked at me like, what's up? <laughs> and I reacted to that by bursting into tears. <laughs> I was bawling. I was crying my eyes out. Because it wasn't just the whole rat situation, it was the utter lack of respect. Do you know what I mean? That I was like, I I just felt like, oh, this rat sees me. He sees the real me. The kind of of person who allows himself to get stuck in this fucking situation because he's trying to save money because he's too in debt to MasterCard because he can't stop buying video games. This is what you get. You get a rat staring at you like you're nothing. Now, you might say, well, you turned things around, Finnegan. You got it together, you got out of the apartment. Only by sheer dumb luck. Do you know how I got out of that situation? I went on a game show, a television game show, and won a car. (laughs) It's true. I went on a VH1 game show called Name That Video, and I won a Toyota 4Runner, fully decked out Toyota 4Runner. And I sold it eventually for $24,479, which covered all of my debt and left me with like $2,200 left over. And I used that money to move to the promised land, Queens. And, <laughs> but that's what I love about New York because only in, I know people say only in New York so often, but only here can you be crying on the toilet one moment. Six stops later on the subway, winning a car on a game show. And then immediately go back to crying in the toilet because it takes VH1 four months to give you the car. Do you understand? Anyway, thank you guys. Have a good night. Bye-bye. I'm so glad that urine in a plastic bag was mentioned. Uh, The very first apartment that I lived in in New York City, first of all, my very first day in New York City, I arrived at Union Square, like I had come from the airport and got a car that left me off at Union Square because I knew that's where NYU was. And I was walking around, I don't know, somewhere in the West Village, and one of the first things that I saw was someone screaming, a woman screaming at her boyfriend below, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, out of the window of their apartment, and she threw a goldfish bowl, a full goldfish bowl filled with water and a goldfish. At the poor guy, and it went all over the ground, and the poor goldfish, I, I, I will admit, I did not save that goldfish. 
But that night was my very first night in New York, and my, my mother had convinced my brother, who was living in New York at that time, to you know, get an apartment to share with your brother so that we don't have to pay for his NYU dorm because my parents couldn't afford for me to live in the dorms. So he got this apartment almost near Coney Island, like way, 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 way far out in Brooklyn. And my first night there with him, I woke up, I was just on this mattress on the floor, I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of an old lady in the apartment just immediately downstairs going, yeah, motherfucker, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you waste of life, you are a horrible son, yada, yada, yada. And I wake up terrified. My brother wakes up too. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, oh, the woman downstairs screams at her son constantly. And it went on the next day. She would be like, bah, 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 and you just hear a little bit like, <laughs> so we finally complained to the landlord about it. And he informed us she had no son. <laughs> uh, she was living alone down there. Uh, one night I went to, uh, I, I put on some Miles Davis and was smoking a joint. I was just being as calm and peaceful as you could possibly be. And I heard gunshots right outside uh, the door. And then I realized, oh no, that's not gunshots. That's someone banging on my door. I went over to the door and I looked through a little keyhole and a, she had a, a, a broom handle and was just going bam, bam, bam on the door. I didn't dare open the door. I was just like, can I help you? <laughs> She said, the constant loudness and storming around up there, stop it. And then the next day, we found a plastic bag and a puddle of urine left in front of our door. So it was uh, a really nice introduction to New York City. But I was out of there soon enough. Uh, I want to bring our next storyteller up to the stage. He is—he has a wonderful podcast. It's a comedy podcast called New York City Crime Report. It's actual reporting on actual crimes in a comedic vein. You can find it at crimereport.nyc. Please welcome to the stage, Pat Dixon. <laughs> Thank you. Before I lived in New York City, I lived in my car. I used to uh, do stand-up comedy on the road about 35 or 40 weeks a year. And uh, while I was doing that, I worked a week in Nashville, and the box office girl was having a birthday party on the Wednesday night, the first night of the week. So I went. And when I got there, I saw this redhead uh, with uh, leopard skin pants dancing. and. Uh, was introduced to her. This was the birthday girl. And she hugged me right away and thanked me for coming to her party. And uh, she hugged me kind of close. And somewhere between the red hair that was on her shoulder and uh, the vinyl jacket that she was wearing as a shirt, I caught this like sharp whiff of Laura. And it occurred to me this vinyl jacket is probably really hard to clean. Yeah. She was kind of, uh, kind of extra intense, sort of hypersexual and four-dimensional type of person. Maybe you've met somebody like that. And uh, we uh, 
talked for a little bit and we got to know each other and as we got to know each other I kind of fell halfway in love with her right away see she expressed sort of an attraction I guess she said if you weren't married I would take you home and fuck your cock off <laughs> and for some reason I kind of felt as as though even though uh, I, I was married that it was a firm offer <laughs> um, but uh but things were not really great at home. My wife and I weren't really talking anymore. And, um, you know, that was kind of the end of it. And I, I, it didn't take long before uh, Laura and I were going to cheap hotel rooms and having all kinds of cheap sex and doing it in towns all over the place, you know. Because I was traveling, so we would go to, to Kentucky and have sex. And we had sex in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And, you know, we had sex in El Paso, Texas, and Oklahoma City, and uh, Columbus, Ohio. Remember Columbus, Ohio? Uh, and it's disgusting. It, it really is. Uh, but it was so exciting to me because the backdrop of my marriage, which was clearly over to me, and feeling that the relationship between Laura and I was doomed from the beginning, but also so awesome like I was just so in love with her you know she had red hair and blue eyes and her answer to everything was yes and uh, I guess I just didn't have any uh, resistance to that um, at that time in my life and, and, and we started to fight and, and we got along less and less actually and then by July we were in Macon uh, Georgia and um, she left in her rented car and then she told me on the phone later about how um, she found herself in the hospital after drinking too much liquor and eating too many pills in a hotel room outside Atlanta. We had kind of come to a breaking point and a lot of guys will bail after the first suicide attempt. <laughs> but uh, I hung in there. In fact, the relationship felt stronger than ever. <laughs> you know, we had fought and things got ugly and it could only get better from here. <laughs> right? My uh, wife left. Uh, we split up, and that was done. It was really more of a formality than anything. And now I was with Laura all the time. She threw her duffel bag into my trunk, and we were off to travel and have sex in more hotel rooms. And October was kind of a blur. She would occasionally break away from her, driving around and fighting and having sex to spend a little bit of time with her mother back in Nashville and during one of those times she told me that she was pregnant uh, this was a fake pregnancy uh, followed by a fake miscarriage and the first suicide attempt was also fake we were living in a weird world of Laura's creation you know and that's part of why it was so exciting I think uh, you find yourself agreeing to things that you know aren't true and more and more that becomes your reality it's insanity you know, but I came a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the crazier it got, the, the, the more uh, I realized I, I had to get out of it, and I couldn't. I, could, I physically couldn't get away from her. I also felt responsible every time she would talk about suicide. I would say, look, I know you want to kill yourself. You know? and she would say, like, I, when you come back from the show tonight, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be dead in your hotel room. I'm going to be dead. <laughs> and I was like, uh, can you get a different room? You know? 
it was it. I, uh, I didn't want her to die, but you know, it was like, I didn't know what to do. I'm not a suicide counselor or anything. You know, it's like a, I told her, if you keep it up, with the t- I'm going to have to call the police because you know, I need help. And she goes, well, look, if you call the police, I'll tell them that you were hitting me and you'll go to jail. And I think that's when I really realized how outmatched I was by Laura and there was a kind of dread that went with that feeling. I was really backed into a corner. She was six feet tall, about 160 pounds, and would sometimes stand between the door and me if I tried to leave. <laughs> and I realized that not, this is, she's not five. One, I can't move her. I mean, and she's clearly angry and insane. And if I want to move her, I have to deck her. Like, I have to really hit her, you know, and I can't do that, you know? So I was sort of, it's sort of a trapped feeling. I mean, uh, so I finally, when she was drunk, managed to get her into the car and, and I dropped her off at her mother's house and she conned me out of another $300. She was good at conning money, you know? She told me once when we were in Indiana, I told her, look, we have to keep separate residences, you know? This was in like December. And she goes, uh, separate residence. So she goes, look, I'll tell you what. If you give me $200, you'll never see me again. And I fell over myself getting $200 to her. And, and she took the money and folded it and put it into her bra. And then she sat on the couch and read a magazine. <laughs> and that was the last we spoke of it. Why protest? <laughs> After I finally got her out of my car, I felt alive again. I felt good. I felt free. And I felt like this is the first time I've really physically been away from her in months, you know? This is December now. For the next couple of weeks, my phone started to ring. And some days it would ring 36 times, you know? And she would leave these messages. You know, I mentioned to one guy, I said, please don't call this girl, you know, or anything like that when you come into town. But she's kind of stalking me. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then my phone rang with her 15 minutes later, and she left a message. Quit telling people I'm stalking you. She said, you don't know the meaning of stalk. Uh, So the calls finally stopped. And um, January 4th, 2004, and I remember the date, because that's the date somebody tried to kill me. (laughs) I was driving to a show, after the show, Chattanooga, Tennessee, I went to the IHOP, the International House of Pancakes, and I, uh, as I was walking to the restaurant, they you know, shut the door, and I walked uh, towards there, and, and, and I heard my name, Dixon, and I turned around, and there she was, this ghastly, white, red hair, strangely dressed, and uh, she said, come to me, and it was the creepiest shit I've ever seen, you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and I didn't come to her. I, I, I started walking towards the pancakes, you know? And, and she grabbed my arm, uh, and I dragged her, you know? And, and, and she says, no, I want to talk. I just want to talk. I just want to talk. I need to talk to you, you know? And whew, I did want to have a conversation with her. And I made it to the door of the IHOP, and she uh, reached into her pocket, her, her front jeans pocket, and she took out this uh, gun. She said, look, I have a 9 millimeter," And I uh, grabbed her wrist with my right hand and uh, I managed to shake the gun out of her hand and then she jumped on my back and the sounds that came out of her mouth it was like an injured animal or something like a howl and a growl and she's scratching my face 
with her fingernails and trying to poke out my eyes and stuff and beating my head and neck. I had the gun in my hand and I made it inside the restaurant and I slid the gun across the floor. There were security guards at the IHOP. Cause it's a Saturday night, people get drunk and uh, I guess it's that kind of place. And they separated us and then I was outside and the whole thing was over and I heard this noise, I turned around, they seated her right by the glass, banging on the glass. And I turned around the window, rather, of the IHOP. And she was looking at me with this, like, satisfied look on her face. Like she got what she wanted. I found out later that when they go, what were you doing with the gun? She said, I was going to shoot that motherfucker and then shoot myself. I was filling out a police report. And it was a police lights everywhere in the, in the parking lot, five or six cars. And I was leaning against a wall. And an officer walked over, and, and he said to me, uh, he asked me something I've been asked a lot of times since then. He said, what did you do to her? <laughs> That's a good question, what did you do to her? I always appreciate people who blame the victim. Why not just ask me what I was wearing? You know, My murder slut outfit. You know, my, uh, you know, if it was a man who tried to shoot me, somebody would probably say, well, what happened? Uh, did it was some kind of pancake argument or something? Uh, but if a woman tries to shoot you, well, that's what you get for thinking with your dick, sir. And I suppose it's true. I suppose it really is true. But that happens to men. We think with our dicks. And there's a reason why. It's because uh, it's our dicks have some pretty good ideas. Um, but I, I, if I learned anything, it's that, you know, maybe I, I should have, uh, you know, gone to counseling with my wife. <laughs> you, know? you have to express your needs, you know, because people can't read your mind, and otherwise you could get killed. <laughs> Thank you. you I'm a very different person since my transition and I really do regret my behavior at the IHOP that night uh, <laughs> didn't you kind of expect that Pat might sit down at a piano and go into a Tom Waits song after that one uh, our next storyteller she was on the very first ever episode of Risk a favorite of mine, kind of a hero of mine. I started to learn about storytelling uh, way back when we started Risk from partly listening to her do her thing. She is now the host of Ask Me Another on National Public Radio. She's also the author of the book Screw Everyone Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. <laughs> I have joked with her that our stories are the opposite. Mine should be marrying my way to sluttery. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Ophira Eisenberg! It is true. I think that should be the exact title of your book, Kevin. I, uh, when, I, I, when I moved here, uh, sort of a little-known fact, from 2002 to 2005, I supported my volunteer comedy career. Um, <laughs> by working in IT. I was a computer consultant. I didn't go to school on it, 
I didn't take any lessons in it. I just had a lot of computer geek friends who were willing to teach me and answer all my questions and kind of show me how to do it. Uh, because as it turns out, I'm not a model, uh, but I am IT pretty. <laughs> so, uh, but I will admit, like, I, I was good. It requires a lot of logical thinking. I wasn't fantastic. Like, I, I didn't have it in my soul. I could help people out with installing applications and some server stuff and fixing their email. But I wasn't, like, an amazing computer whiz. And I didn't have any of the accreditations. So often, I felt like a bit of an imposter. Like, I, w I, I got a job working for a small company, and it was so stressful because uh, I just didn't want anyone to figure out that I kind of knew what I was doing. I would go out to little offices, some of them were architecture firms or uh, hedge fund companies or advertising agencies and, and fix their computers. Everything was basically like, I can't get my mail. It, that was basically everyone's problem. I can't get on the internet, I can't get in my mail. Uh, but because I would walk in and because I guess I was IT pretty, I wore a little bit of makeup, I had a pair of sequins flats that I enjoyed wearing at the time. When I walked in and they saw me, everyone was very suspicious. They were like, uh, are you sure you're the computer person? Uh, especially the hedge fund companies. Those guys did not want, want me near their computer. Sometimes they would sit me in the waiting room and they would, I'd hear them call the office to be like, is this, did you, is this person really the real thing? Sometimes they would ask me if I was the girlfriend or wife of the computer tech that I guess I was coming there early because he forgot his lunch. Like, I don't know why that even makes sense that I was there. <laughs> And if they, you know, did decide that I was the person there to fix their computer and get their email working or whatever, they would hover over me while I was on their Blackberry or whatever and just keep going, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure you know what you're doing? And I'd be like, if only I knew more, I would ruin all of your stuff. But I only know enough to fix it, kind of. But you know, and it, to be honest with you, it was more shocking. Uh, and I understood it on one level because I didn't look like the average computer nerd. And on the other level, I thought, well, this is fun. I get to prove them wrong. Let's hope I can fix their problem. At the office, there was a problem, big problem, because there was a client that nobody could help. They sent all the really good computer geek people, all the people with personalities the size of a soap dish, all the people with ongoing sniffles, all the people with mechanical pencils for friends. And no one was able to help this guy out. This is a uh, New York Broadway producer. I am obviously not gonna mention his name, but he had a nickname in the Broadway community, and that nickname was the screamer. And that was because he had a terrible temper and therefore screamed. And if you are the one person on Broadway that gets that nickname, I mean, really think about all the different personalities that make up Broadway. I mean, diva actors, insane directors, power-hungry stage managers, frustrated choreographer. You are the one person that they're like, no, that's the screamer. I mean, you have to be screaming a lot. 
So this, this guy was supposedly a very difficult case, and uh, he deemed all the other people not good enough for the job. And so my boss came to me and said, listen, I really need you to do this. I need you to do a good job. You're the one with the personality. So you're going to go in there, and you're going to smooth it over. And I was like, I, you know, I, 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 what if I'm not able to do it? He's like, just do a good job. Just do a good job. And I was, I was afraid walking in. I'm very bad with confrontation. I avoided at all cost. I avoided breaking up with four guys, uh, instead of dealing with the breakup, I moved cities. <laughs> I'm dead serious, I did that. They just found out about it like wet late. <laughs> uh, so I walked into this office at 10 a.m. in the morning, already sort of shaking. I didn't understand what I was getting into. The receptionist was dabbing her eyes of tears. The office had been open five minutes. <laughs> And I said, uh, I'm here to see, I'm here to fix the computer. And she nodded and pointed towards an office. The door was slightly ajar. And I sort of crept in, and I was met with this man who was standing up. He was short, but the way he stood made him seem just, there was an air about them. I mean, I have to say, the second I saw this guy, I was afraid of him. It was, there was a force around him. It was like there was a different kind of weather going on around him. The first thing he said to me was like, so they sent you? And I, I felt like he was gripping my throat. He looked like he had been to hell and back and liked it. Um, and I was like, yes, they sent me. And he sort of wandered around me. He, he had a, a super red face, and it wasn't a burn. It was just from compressed anger. Uh, and, and he said, that's the computer. And he, then he turned to me and said, you have 10 minutes. And just left. Uh, and I was like, oh my god, I have 10 minutes! And as I'm going to work at the computer, I'm also a rational person, so I'm like, what the fuck is gonna happen in 10 minutes? <laughs> like, what is gonna happen? Is he gonna shoot me? Is there gonna be like 10 Broadway dancers come in all mean and like high kick me until I die? But I was like, something's gonna happen, something's gonna happen, I don't know what it's gonna be. Like somehow he instilled a lot of fear in me. There was a window in that office that went in between the buildings, you know, I was about six floors up, and I was like, that's plan B. My plan B was just to jump out of the window and keep running forever, you know, just keep running till everything was over. And then I was also worried, what if I can't figure this out? So I'm on his computer, and it was a typical thing. I uh, couldn't get a, any email, no email flowing, couldn't get on the internet. You know, this is like 2003. This is when you got pop-ups uh, and malware and spyware if you were like surfing around and doing things. It's so funny that that was a thing. Uh, but that was a thing. And of course, what did that was like you were surfing around to places you shouldn't be surfing. Uh, and within, a f I'm looking around, and I'm sort of staring at this picture framed of him and his wife going like, how could anyone fuck you? You know, like, and then I'm like, or maybe he's amazing. Uh, just <laughs> as I am in his temp folders and in the cookies, and of course it is all revealed that the reason that it has all gone down is because he's just surfing copious amounts of porn. Just loads of porn. That is what his little machine is all about. Uh, it is for him. And, you know, I can sort of see, you see these sort of names of the sites. Not stuff I don't think his wife would like very much. Uh, I don't think stuff his pet would like very much. Uh, and I'm like, okay, so it's because of porn. And I'm thinking, should I, oh, I can't, I've never dealt with this before. I've never had to confront with anyone about this before. Uh, how am I going to go about this? Uh, and just 
just as I'm trying to fit it together, he walks in and goes, 10 minutes! And, you know, again, like, you know, just this whole, like, storm fills the room. And he goes, and what? And, and what? And I hesitate. All of a sudden, I'm reduced to a fearful puppy. And I say, um, well, uh, it seems that your computer was compromised. And I just sort of trail off. And I just, it's like I hear a pilot, like, go off you know, inside of his soul, slowly igniting him. And it starts erupting and he's like, I've been compromised. This is what I pay your company for. First they send me an idiot and now they send me a woman. No one had really just come out and said it before. I applaud him for that. But that is my trigger words, basically. And so I started getting very shaky inside. And I was like, well, uh, and he is just yelling. And I'm like, no, listen. And he's yelling over me. And he goes, what, what, what is it, what is it? What's wrong? Speak up, speak up, girl. And I go, okay, um, you've been surfing a lot of porn. (laughs) And he says, what? And now I realize, holy shit. I have a lot of power. Like, I am the one that is standing in between him and his porn machine. I am the one that now knows this knowledge, and I can, like, really enjoy this moment. I'm not very good at it, but I do say to him, you serve some porn. <laughs> My voice is bad. And, uh, and I was like, and you know, you've compromised your machine because that's what happens now. You've got spyware and malware and viruses and it's taking you completely off the internet. And that is what you've done because you've searched so much porn. I say porn way too many times because I feel like I'm just getting a little drunk on my own sense of this small amount of power. And then there is just a pause. And it goes on a little long, and he is just looking at me to the point where I turn away because I feel like maybe the lasers from his eyes are going to wear through my body like acid. And in a very small voice, he just says, can you fix it? (laughs) And I'm like, yes. Uh, But we have to rebuild your entire computer. We have to rebuild everything. And I need all your disks with all your applications and all your passwords. And it's not going to be customized anymore, you know, because I'm just going to have to do a job, like, right from the beginning. And we'll have to start all over. So I hope you have all of that stuff. And he goes, fine. And he leaves. I'm just sitting there. So I get up. And I sort of salute the computer. (laughs) We've done some good work today. And I leave. And the receptionist says, you can come back tomorrow. And I go back to the job, and they're like, how was it? Uh, I'm trying to talk to the, one of the guys that, they, that, like, oh, I was, what happened when you were there? Like, this guy, he was crazy. Did he yell at you? And he's just going, no, no, no. Like, he has PTSD uh, from the experience. They're like, what happened to you? I go, I don't know. I'm just supposed to go back tomorrow. I don't want to tell them all of the things. I don't want to tell them about the woman thing. I don't want to tell them about the porn. I don't even know what to do about it. But I come there the next day. The reception is there. She gives me a packet. It's got all the CDs. It's got all the passwords. Angry people are so fucking organized. (laughs) And she says that he has taken an impromptu uh, trip for a week. Because I guess if he can't scream at anyone, might as well leave town. (laughs) And I sit down and I rebuild his computer. And I do this with him every five months for the next three years. He becomes my best client. (laughs) Thank you. Ophira Eisenberg! 
so awesome to have Ophira back on the show. Now, our final storyteller tonight is someone that we have been uh, trying to find a way to get on the show for the longest time. It's so funny. There are so many people whose schedules are just so crazy that it's hard to find the way to make things match up. He's kind of a hero of mine. He was uh, one of the founders of Nights of Our Lives, which was a story, still is, a storytelling show at UCB, which is one of the really like uh, standard bearers of the storytelling shows in town. Crazy stories all the time at Nights of Our Lives. And he himself <clears throat> just has so many remarkable stories. It's just unbelievable. He has a show, a television show, that is going to be completely bonkers, completely bonkers, on the Fusion Network. It will be called The Chris Gethard Show. It has a quite a history behind it already uh, on uh, your cable channels already. Please welcome to the stage, Chris Gethard! <laughs> Thank you guys so much, and thank you, Kevin, for that very nice intro, and it has been, it's been a couple years that we've been trying to find a date. It's really nuts. I've always felt bad, but I'm so glad to be here and finally be a part of this. This is nice, and especially this topic. This one's like, panic is like very near to my heart. I will not say near and dear to my heart. It is not dear to my heart in any way. It has plagued me um, since I was about 12 or 13. That's when I really started suffering is the only way to say it uh, from depression real depression and that depression would often express itself in panic attacks it was a thing that I didn't know what it was and I didn't I didn't um, really tell anybody about it for about 10 years but it's a thing that that happened and, and for me um, I think for everybody they're different and even for me they're different every time but some of the things that I know are my face gets very hot it goes numb like pins and needles I can't like, even take a breath and I will usually wind up lying on the ground and crying and they affect my life for like weeks afterwards. It's just really horrible. And um, that started, yeah, when I was a kid. And uh, you guys don't have to worry. I'm very comfortable talking about it. I see a shrink now. I, I work on it. I work very hard. I've seen a few shrinks over the years. My first guy, very standard by the book, played by the rules, did everything the correct way. And that didn't work for me. <laughs> at all and now I see a lady who's the opposite I don't know if she's even aware there are rules uh, but she doesn't play by them not by a long shot she's like a tough talking foul mouth broad who grew up in Jersey I love her I get her I understand her she like she once spent a whole session sitting on the couch with me showing me pictures on an iPad of a house she bought in Mexico the insurance does not cover this I paid her cash $175 to show me pictures of a Mexican house. This is also how she told me that she was moving to Mexico. That's how she informed me. All of our sessions are now via Skype. Um, she's come to see me in shows, and that's like a nice thing, but it's, you have to remember, this is my workplace. This is my job. You wouldn't want your shrink hanging out in your workplace, but it's debatable, because what I do is public performance, so it's on the, on the border. Here's a thing that's not debatable. She once came and saw me in a show, and my parents also attended it, and they lived near each other in New Jersey at the time, and she asked them for a ride home, and they gave it to her. <laughs> that's not okay. If you're not familiar with how like mental health doctoring works, it should never end up with your shrink and your parents alone in a car. 
should not happen. There's no conceivable reality where that's how it ends. Is is that it makes no sense. But I love her even though she's crazy and even though she ignores the rules and even though I probably know more about her than she knows about me, even though we've been working together for since 2007, I love her. Um, and she does a lot for me. And, and, and like, for example, she once said six words that I think kept me alive. Um, in June of 2012, we'd been seeing each other for five years at that point, And I'd been sober for 10 years at that point. And then I got booked to do a show at a music festival called Bonnaroo. And some people are chuckling because they've clearly been and they know that drugs flow freely at Bonnaroo. And it had been 10 years and I thought I could get away with it. And what happened was I realized that I have an addictive personality even if I managed to control it for 10 years, it didn't go away. And I learned that when I did $300 worth of MDMA in 36 hours. Which is not even how MDMA works. It, I later looked it up and I realized I was just basically hammering my brain with chemicals that were having no effect. And it fucked my life up. It messed my life up for a good summer. The whole summer of 2012 was spent recovering from that. I came home from Bonner. I broke up with a girl who I'd been dating for eight years. I, uh, I had the same roommate for 10 years. I just moved out, no notice. I just left. And I started acting crazy, man. I was like, partying all the time in New York, staying up all night, sleeping with tons of girls, which like, I don't get how I pulled it off either. <laughs> I think I, what I learned that summer was like, looking like a member of Weezer goes further in New York than I knew. It goes a long way. It goes a long way. And it was really nuts. It was really insane. And I didn't tell my shrink the full extent of it. Like I told her I did some drugs. She asked me if I was okay, and I said yes, and that was just a lie. It was not true, and I hid it, and that's not a cool thing for me to do. And in the midst of that summer, while she didn't realize how much I was reeling, she said, you know, I think you might have some like ADD type stuff, and maybe that's something that helps lead to your panic attacks. Maybe the fact that you're, you have that anxiety is getting you there, so maybe we treat you for ADD, and then we can cut your panic attacks off at the pass instead of dealing with the aftermath of them. And she said, I think we should put you on Adderall. And I was like, yeah, we should do that. We should absolutely do that, because I didn't know much about Adderall, but I hear you can abuse it, and that was the mood I was in that summer. And Adderall is a type of methamphetamine. It's a, it, I don't know if it's methamphetamine. It's an amphetamine, um, but it's close enough. I became a meth head instantly. I was eating 60 milligrams of Adderall before noon every day and just going nuts. That's crazy. Everybody who just said, wow, is either a medical professional or prescribed or a college student currently. Um, <laughs> because that's a lot of fucking Adderall. And I started getting all these crazy things happening. Like my muscles were twitching and I'd be dehydrated constantly. I was extraordinarily productive, I will say that. Um, any, anything that happened to me in the summer of 2012, physically, any weird thing that happened to me, if I Googled Adderall, comma, the thing that was happening, hundreds of message board posts would come up. Like Adderall, can't get a boner, yup. Like, Adderall can get a boner, boner never goes away, yup. Like, Adderall, get a boner, and the boner's working fine, and then the boner just deflates like a balloon, yup, all the time. Adderall, shitting blood, yup. 
Adderall can make some people so tense inside that it gives you internal hemorrhoids. And when the internal hemorrhoids tear, you shit a lot of bright red blood. And that was happening to me. Funny side note to this story. This took place in 2012. About three months ago, my wife was like, why is there always blood on our sheets? And I was like, oh, because I shit blood. And she was like, how long has this been going on? And I was like, since 2012. And, and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I think it maybe it'll clear up on its own. And she's like, go see a fucking doctor. Go see a doctor. You're ruining our sheets. And I did. I got a surgery from this guy. His name is Dr. Rabin Romani. He's in South Williamsburg. If you need a guy, he's great. He's awesome. He was super cool. He was super chill. Anyway, this summer was insane. As you can tell, I'm making jokes, but you can all tell I'm making jokes to mask the the seriousness of that summer it was really it was it was just foundationless is how i always describe it it was scary it was really scary and i was doing tons of shows that whole summer because I started performing comedy in New York when I was 19 years old. I grew up on stage. It's where I'm most comfortable. This right now is the most confident and social you will ever see me. Even backstage, the other comedians will tell you I have largely sat in a corner fearful of them <laughs> the whole night. I'm, I, but here I feel comfortable. And when you're a performer and you're performing, you're in control. I get to tell you guys my version of the story, and it feels good. And every time you, it does. And every time you guys laugh, it means that you understand in some way. And I feel less alone. And in that summer in particular, that meant a lot. When, when, when I say a joke and you guys laugh, I feel like we're connecting and we're coming together as a community. And that's why I think every theater is secretly a church, which is a very pretentious thing to tell you guys right after I talked about shitting blood. <laughs> I know that, I understand that. But I was doing shows all the time and one Sunday night, I was doing a show um, a few blocks west of here at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And it was the Sunday night show called Ask Cat. It's been running for about 20 years and I'd done that show for many, many years. I was like in charge of booking that show for many years. It was safe territory for me. And that show, it's interesting. Like a lot of really great improvisers will come and do that show and some of them are famous people and they come back and drop in. But it's actually really bad improv. It's great people doing shitty work because people fuck around. They mess with each other, sell each other out, out, make fun of each other on stage, like pull the rug out from under each other. It's like everybody messes with each other. It's part of the deal with that show. And I'm letting you know that because I had someone said something about me that was a joke. And it was a joke that had been said many times before. And every other time I would just make fun of whoever said it back. And even this person, this was a great friend of mine for 10 years. He said this thing. And I'm telling you that because this is how this show worked. He wasn't malicious. What happened was I was in the middle of an improv scene and I said a line. And the guy on stage with me went, well, at least I can straighten my arms. And what he was referring to was this. That's as straight as my elbow goes. Um, this one goes out at a different angle. And my hands, you can see my hands are weird. I can't really bend them. My knees are messed up. It's part of why my forehead's so big. And it's this thing that my mom had. She passed it on to me. and. It turned, with her, it turned into this really nasty um, rheumatoid arthritis, and for me, it's only gonna get worse as I get older, and he said it, and for some reason on that night, I mean, that joke had been made 99 times before, and I would just make fun of the person back, whoever said it, and uh, this was the 100th time, and I just felt my breath go <laughs> and my face got hot, and the pins and needles started, and uh, right on the other side of the person who said it, very good, one of my oldest friends in the world, a comedian named Shannon O'Neill, she's sitting in a chair, and she looked at me and saw my face, and I realized, like, oh, no, she sees it. 
she sees it, everybody could see it. And it was a sold out crowd that night, probably close to 200 people. And all I could think was like, 200 people are about to see me have a panic attack on stage. That's never happened before. And I didn't know what to do. Like, because in, in my mind, I'm like, there's 200 people looking, not just not just looking at me. They're looking at this thing that I think is this really hideous thing about myself. And I can feel it. And I feel so naked and alone. And I didn't know what to do. So I just turned around and I just walked off stage, just in the middle of a scene. I was like, <gasps> and just left. And um, a lot of times I'll tell this story and people are like, oh, who said that to you? And I don't, it, you know, it, it's gossipy and I don't think it's important, so I'll just move on. I'll give you one hint uh, and let you know he played Kenneth the Page on 30 Rock. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I walked off stage and Jack McBrayer followed me and he was upset. And understandably so, he was behind me. We were walking backstage towards the green room and he's behind me, he's like, dude, you, what are you doing? You walk off stage, you make me look like such an asshole. That's the show, like, that's what the show is. And he was totally right. That's the social contract of the show. You mess with each other. He's like, we both look like, you look like a crazy person. I look like an asshole. And he's like kind of yelling at me and we're in the green room and my back was still to him. And then I turned around and as soon as I turned around, I didn't even say a word. He saw me and he went, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know because my eyes were just dead and there were tears and he could just see it that I was just gone. I was just gone. And he just kept, he put his hands up. I'll never forget. And he went, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I just went, it's been a really bad summer, Jack. It's been a really bad summer. And I pushed past him and I left. And I went out the back entrance of UCB and then there was another show. They do two shows a night on Sundays and I'd been doing that show for years and there's all these people who come every week and I just ran past all of them crying and you could see some of them were like, oh, I guess Gether's not doing the 9.30, you know, like you could see it and I didn't know what to do. I was totally panicking, completely panicking and I got in my car and I started driving and I didn't know where to go, and I just started making random turns, and then next thing I know, I realized I was going through the Lincoln Tunnel, because I grew up in New Jersey. I live in Brooklyn now, but I, I grew up in New Jersey. It feels really safe to me, so I just, I, in my freak out, I was like, Jersey, go Jersey, I'm in the tunnel, and I didn't know what to do, and I was in my head, I'm like, my internal monologue just gets so out of control during these attacks, and in my head, I'm like, maybe I should drive to my parents' house, I'll drive to my parents' house, I'll be okay there, and then I'm like, no, because if I show up in the middle of the night at my parents' house like this, they're gonna put me in a mental hospital, they're gonna put I mean we had talked during previous incidents about how maybe that would be a good idea and I didn't want that and then then it started getting really dark and to me one of the scariest things about being mentally ill is when I'm thinking crazy things but I'm not yet crazy enough that I don't understand that they're not crazy you know what I mean where I can hear myself think something and be like that's fucked up but I mean it so like in my head I was like what I should do is I should get a whole bunch of fucking whiskey and I should get a hotel room and I should throw my phone away and I should just fucking chill out and see what happens and then in my head I'm like that's not a good idea and then in my head I'm like that's why I should do it it was really fucked up and dark it was really bad and I'm making all these turns and I'm hearing those things and I'm scaring myself my own in internal monologue is causing me fear and it's getting more out of control and I'm making random turns and the next thing I know I'm in Weehawken I don't know why I don't know anybody in Weehawken I have no connection to Weehawken but I am in Weehawken and I start walking along the cliffs above the Hudson River and I'm thinking to myself I'm one I wonder if this is high enough that if I jump I'll die and again I'm not going to but I hear myself thinking it and I realize I can't stop thinking that it's out of control and 
I don't know how to catch my own thoughts, if that makes sense. And I sit on this bench, because Weehawken, those cliffs are right over the Hudson. It's the most beautiful view of the city you'll ever see. I actually, like, will say, like, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in the New York area. They have these little buses from Port Authority, couple bucks, you run out there, cheap date, beautiful view, you blow somebody's mind with it, do it. Don't tell them you heard about it in a suicide-related story. <laughs> But just like go out there, it's beautiful. And I was sitting on this bench and I was crying for a long time, just kind of heaving, crying. And, and part of why I know it's a great date spot is because these two couples walked by and they were clearly on a double date. They were two Hispanic couples. They were really beautiful people. They were all good looking and it was very much clearly a double date. And they were joking and laughing and they were walking right by me. And then I was sitting on a bench and one of the couples sat here and the other couple sat here. And they were talking and joking and laughing and no one acknowledged the crying 32-year-old white guy on the middle of the bench. It made no sense and I was like looking at them and like crying and they were just, they just were looking at each other. No one made eye contact with me. And in my head I went, I get what's going on. I'm dead. I'm a ghost, they can't see me. That's what happens to me. I'm the ghost of Weehawken. <laughs> My destiny is I haunt Weehawken forever. Like, it could be worse. Like, it could be Union City or North Bergen. Like, there's worse towns in Hudson County. Like, this is okay, you know? And I got up and I just started wandering around Weehawken, crying, convinced I was a ghost and no one could see me. And at one point, I just threw open the doors to this steakhouse, like this fancy steakhouse up on the cliffs, and I just walked in and cried. I started just walking up to tables and looking and seeing what people were eating. And in my head, I wasn't saying any of this. I was thinking it, like walking up to a table and being like, you're eating a burger at a steakhouse? Like, grow up, grow up. Oh, scallops, nice scallops. Steakhouse choice, good. But I'm not actually saying any of that so all the people in this restaurant just see a crying man going <laughs> just wandering around and then I just left I just left and at one point these cliffs they have all these like um, inclines like these things you can walk up and I found myself at the bottom of one and I was walking up and things were getting really bad and really I mean as you can tell but really out of control and I'm walking up this incline and I stop because there's graffiti stenciled on this concrete pathway and it says, what are you doing here? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's completely bizarre. And I walk up a little further and there's another one stenciled. And it says, maybe things can change. And I was like, well, that, this is really crazy. And I felt myself calming down and I walked up a little further and there was another one that said, tomorrow could be different. And in my head, I'm like, this is beautiful, what a beautiful moment. Like some artist put this here and he or she didn't know if anyone was gonna find it. Not only did someone find it before it got removed, I found it when I'm like this. Like, like that's what art is for. You send a message out in the world, you hope somebody receives it and I received it and I was feeling such like euphoria and I, I got to the top of the hill, I was almost running to see if there were more and there was one more and it said www.godaddy.com. <laughs> And I was like, of course, of course GoDaddy's the type of company doing shitty hipster advertising in Weehawken, of course. And all the euphoria just left. I felt more betrayed than ever by life, by the life around me. And I, I, 
I kept walking around for a while and I wound up back at my crying bench, uh, which at this point I had spent enough time on it crying that it was certifiably my crying bench. And I sat there crying for a long time and I didn't know what to do. Eventually I took out my phone and real late on a Sunday night I called my shrink. And she picked up and she was like, you never call me off hours, what's going on? I said, I, I think I'm a ghost and we hawk in and I was gonna get whiskey and my elbows are broken and I'm ugly and, and, and I'm losing it and I can't really calm down. I don't know what's going on. She said, okay, okay, okay. She goes, look, uh, I got a couple questions for you. She goes, first, before I even get into that, she goes, I'll tell you right now, you don't sound crazy. And that meant a lot to me because I don't, you know, it's scary. It's scary to realize you're going crazy. So for someone who knows me to say that, it meant a lot. And she goes, let me ask you this, like, compared to a couple hours ago, you think you're headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? And I sat and I thought about it. And I said, you know, I feel awful. I feel really awful and I'm really scared, but I got to say, I feel a little less scared than an hour ago if I'm thinking objectively. And she goes, well, that's a good sign, right? And I go, yeah, and she goes, well, it's a good sign that you called me, isn't it? And I said, it is, it is. And she paused and then she goes, honestly, we'll talk about it on Thursday. And she said that and uh, those were the six words that I think kept me alive. We'll talk about it on Thursday. Because it hit me, it's late on a Sunday, it's pretty much Monday. I can, I can stay alive till Thursday, I can do that. When you put it like that, that's simple enough. I can do that. And my guess is that that's not the way a doctor should behave. If a client calls you in the middle of the night and is like, I'm a ghost and I want to jump off cliffs, you shouldn't be like, cool, Thursday it is. I imagine that that's not the correct thing to do. But that's what she said and it worked for me. And, and I have talked openly about the fact that I suffer from this stuff on stage sometimes, and it's always in the service of comedy. I, I, I turn stories into jokes, that's what I do. And I wound up writing a little bit about it online as well, and it kind of went viral. I sort of unintentionally became like a, an advocate for mental health awareness, which I did not expect, but I don't mind, because people say it helps and I'm happy to help. But people ask me for advice. and. Sometimes people will be like, I suffer and I'm depressed and scared. I don't know what to do. What do I do? And I always say, I don't know. I am not a professional. And it's not even like I can pass on advice from my shrink because she's not really a professional either. <laughs> like if I was going to tell you something she told me in good conscience, I'd have to be like, you know, my buddy once told me this thing. <laughs> like that's as far as I could take it. But what I can say to those people is you have your Thursday. You have your thing that's not unattainable. For me, that was actually Thursday. Maybe that's what it is for you, but maybe your version of Thursday is the person you feel comfortable opening up to or a place where you know you feel safe, but it's out there and it's not that far away because I found mine and I'm not very strong. So I bet you can do it too. But I can give some advice to the people who are on the other side of the fence, which I get a lot of people going, my mom, my roommate, my friend is suffering and I don't know how to deal with it, how can I help them? And for that, I can give you some advice that I learned by an example that was set, which was you can be like my old shrinks who used to do everything by the book, who worried about making sure everything they did was correct, or you can be like my new shrink who doesn't worry at all about what's correct, but really worries about doing what's right. 
who really is willing to pick up the phone even if she's probably not supposed to. And she did that for me. And it's part of why I love her, and it's part of why I'll always love her. Even though she once told me, in the 70s, she starred in a series of pornographic films. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. in a fist fight And I found you with a bottle of wine You had the good I like the 4th of July You swore and said we are not We are not signing star This I know I never said we are Though I've never been through hell like that I've closed enough windows to know you can never look back Are you sinking like a stone? Carry on. May your past be the sound. Are your feet upon the ground? And carry on. Carry on. That is all for this week, folks. This is fun behind me now and as you know we have two very big shows coming up soon Detroit Detroit you've got to come out and see us on April 9th Chicago Chicago you got to come out and see us on April 11th I want to give a little shout out to Kef speakers and headphones K-E-F. They come out of London and they've started making these products for getting state-of-the-art sound out of MP3 listening. They're trying to get the kind of sound that you used to be able to achieve in the 70s and so with regular stereo equipment out of digital equipment. And the headphones they sent me are just, uh, just the very best things I have heard in the past 15 or so years. Definitely go and check out KEF products, K-E-F. They are the greatest. Finally, I just want to say, holy camoles, folks, we are so profoundly grateful for all of the donations that came in during Max Fun Drive 2015 just exceeded everyone's expectations. Just remarkable generosity. Just beautiful to see the enthusiasm and the support and just how much fun Max Fun Drive was this year. It was ridiculous. We are so, so very thankful to be a part of such a wonderful artistic community as Maximum Fun. So thanks again for that. And uh, I guess that about wraps it up. I'm dying every second that I have to be doing 
these hosting segments in a noisy hotel lobby with people staring at me. And so, folks, <laughs> let me just say until next week, uh, you know, today <laughs> today's the day. Take a risk. If you're lost, you're broken, or you're so cool.